Hi, I'm James Vincent, host of Leaders in Innovation, a most innovative companies podcast from Fast Company. I'm a founding partner at Founder, where we help give voice to vision for founders. Innovating simply at the product level is not enough. To get to true impact, scale, and mass adoption now requires innovation across multiple levels. You have to design around systemic issues such as supply chain, go-to-market, new types of partnership, and new ways of working. Whilst we're going to be talking about AI and new foods and biotech, we're really going to be compiling a new innovators playbook with lessons you can apply no matter the size of your company or the job title you hold. My interview today is with Josh Wolf from Lux Capital, the venture capital firm. Josh and I have been friends for a number of years. Josh invests in founders who see the future and companies who make it real. He has $5 billion under management. He's based in New York and in Silicon Valley. And he's right at the bleeding edge of AI, biotech, defense. One thing that Josh says about Lux Capital is they believe before people understand. And he has a lot of very interesting points of view about the role that technology plays in the human condition, where to invest, why to invest, and some of the cautionary notes around how to implement technology, particularly the new ones that maybe not everybody understands. Very excited to be sitting here with Josh Wolf from Lux Capital this morning. How are you, Josh? I'm great, man. Great to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. I wanted to start with an existential question. We're at this Promethean moment now where there's this leap of the relationship between humanity and technology. Can humans keep up? And I don't know a better person to ask that question of because I think you know what's coming towards us. So how do you think about that question? The first thing is thinking about it as magic. Okay, take anybody from 500 years ago or 400 years ago or 100 years ago. They would have thought that that thing was magic. Conjuring electricity, creating a light, and not depending on the circadian rhythms, the turning of day and night, the ability to take fire and not just scorch earth, but cook, and then turn that into a microwave where you press a bunch of buttons and you say, go for 30. I mean, all of this seems like magic. And so part of this is viewed through that lens of constantly creating magic. AI and the current things that we're experiencing, where we feel this uncertainty of how is this going to develop and how behaviorally are we going to work with it is really no different from the way that we have mastered magic all through history. It's just happening a lot faster. And so that becomes a different challenge. It's like magic, but I barely got used to that magic and then another piece of magic came along. So how do you think about that? I think that's part of the accelerating nature of technology itself. And we always feel like if you were to map this on this biologistic S-curve, you always feel like you're on that cusp of that curve that's about to take off exponentially. It's all moving so fast and you wish that you could slow that slipstream down. When you were creating history at Apple that we all now live and experience, for you guys, it was probably planned and known, but it was for the rest of the world, this positive surprise. Oh my God, reimagining what the nature of a phone was like. You don't want to ask what does a specific technology mean or do or what the importance of it is. The question is what happens when everybody has one? So an individual iPhone is interesting, but when everybody has one, 
it's what allows marketplaces and transactions between supply and demand, whether manifested in an Airbnb or an Uber or communications in the global square, whether you believe it to be a cesspool or whether you believe it to be a form of democratizing access to expressing thoughts. And it's the same thing with AI now. You are democratizing the ability for people to produce content that used to be in the silos of certain producers, certain companies. You know, you think about the production of news. It used to be three channels. Now you have an abundance of channels. Well, the downside of that is you would complain, well, everybody's in their echo chamber and you only get to hear the viewpoints that you want. Hollywood movies. It used to be the domain of just a handful of companies that had the equipment and the technology and the know-how and the creative genius. Today, with a company like Runway ML, the average person can use a text prompt to describe in natural language what they want to see. And we will have full cinematic features. It'll just be conjured. And so there's a beautiful democratizing force of this. Now, the key question that it then begs, thinking about, well, this is all moving so fast. You know, we don't care if cancer drugs are moving so fast. We're happy with that. We want innovation to accelerate with the things that we know are generally pro-positive. It's the negative implications that are hard to predict when everybody, quote unquote, has one. The concern for most of this stuff is like with social media. When you guys were doing it at Apple, FaceTime is a beautiful thing. It takes somebody that is far apart and brings them near. Whereas traditional social media that's not driven by Apple historically took people that were near and made them quite far apart. You have brothers and sisters and fathers and daughters sitting next to each other, but they're in two different worlds. I used to have this debate with a brilliant entrepreneur who we backed. And I said, I used to believe sort of Shakespearean, tis nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, that there was no moral valence. There was no positive or negative to a technology other than the fact that the creation of a technology, the mere existence of it was a positive, even if it was just one basis point of the positive, because it allowed for the possibility that somebody was going to use that technology and express their genius, whether that was an electric guitar that would allow Jimi Hendrix to come, or a computer that would allow Bill Gates to come, or an eight millimeter camera that would allow for a Kubrick or a Spielberg. And he said, no, 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 there actually is a moral valence to technology. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it depends on the business model. Because if the business model underlying a technology is for enragement and engagement like it is in social media, you will have negative outcomes. If it's just FaceTime for you and I to see each other with no advertising and no exploitation, it's a very different thing. And that really changed my mind that the implication in this current moment of accelerating AI and gen AI, on the one hand, is this beautiful democratization of the tools that used to be captive to the very large companies. The downside is, what are the business models that will be perverting the virtues of that? The business model drives a certain use case that then perpetuates bad behavior if indeed bad behavior makes more money out of the business model. Charlie Munger said, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. All innovation gets driven and social change by the creation of value. And the question is whether the value created has an impact on humanity that's negative or positive. And sometimes we don't know. Sometimes it takes years for us to say, oh, this was actually a good thing or this was a terrible thing. I will say there is a long history that I think is actually quite predictive as an investor of what the next big thing is going to be. Are you willing to share that with everybody? Yeah, I'll give it away. This is, the, this is the secret, okay? The secret to investing at Lux. And there's a few of them, but this is one. And it's a little bit cheeky, but it's the reality. People say that the most dangerous words are this time is different because history tends to repeat itself. And, you know, every time there's some new thing, people are like, oh my God, this is different. You know, this time the internet was different this time. AI is different this time. Human nature, greed and fear, cycles of excessive funding and then scarcity, that's constant, okay? But the most valuable words not the most dangerous ones, but the most valuable words, it will rot your brain. Every time that those words have been uttered by a parent, it presaged the next $10 billion industry. 
You think about this, rock and roll in the 50s and 60s. It'll rot your brain, this devil music. Hey, boom, $10 billion industry. Uh, 70s and 80s TV, it'll rot your brain. $10 billion plus industry, global influence. 90s chat rooms, we got the internet. 2000s and 2010s video games. These are the drone pilots and the robotic surgeons of yeah. today yeah. that were trained playing copious amounts of video games. Whatever it is that people are starting to bemoan now as a parent, it's going to predict the next big $10 billion industry that comes tomorrow. And the notion of social media as a gateway is awesome, but the notion of social media as a destination is scary. Yes. The real world is so important. And, you know, I'm always thinking about abundance and scarcity. Right now, what is there a scarcity of, in my view? In-person experiences. Mm -hmm. Why? Okay, of course, work from home, post-COVID world. Do I need to go into the office? The downside of that for society, writ large, is how addictive and enraging and engaging social media is. And I love social media. But if you are constantly on social media, all you see is doom and gloom and negativity because those are the things that really are amplified because it's good for business. I can't tell you how many times people outside of New York have been like, oh my God, you must be terrified. The subways have become a war zone. Yeah. New York City is crime-ridden. But when you actually step out in the real world, because technology in this case perverts the reality. It's true. The more both scary and provocative thing is if you accept that the past 10 plus years of technology and algorithmic engagement was mostly about commanding your attention. Yeah. That the next whatever number of years, two years, five years, 10 years, is gonna be about your intimacy. The feeling of being able to emotionally hack you and in a positive way, in a negative way, to make you feel something, to make you read something and to evoke an emotion and to be able to measure the facial recognition of sadness, of smile, which computers can do as well in some cases as people. Now, why is it good and why is it bad? It's good if there's the person that truly is lonely, to have that her-like companion, a computer that truly understands and validates your frustrations and your fears and your emotions and can sort of talk you off the proverbial ledge, can talk you off of depression, can give you a dialectic sort of cognitive behavioral therapy approach to dealing with a problem and recognizing that you don't have to catastrophize, that would be a virtuous thing. The kind of thing that isn't accessible to the masses that may actually make people happier. The negative of that would be what you've seen of the past also 10 years of young men who are living in their parents' basements and incels and don't actually have relationships and have violent thoughts and those kinds of things. How do you find that balance? I don't know. It's interesting how the education process or nurturing as a parent has to now deal with that and how we bring up our children in an environment where we know that to be the case. I say this even with my kids where, you know, TikTok is banned, Snapchat is allowed in limited doses, Instagram's allowed and even lesser. Snapchat for my 13-year-old is the mall that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. You'd go to the mall, you'd hang out, you'd go to the stores, you'd browse, you'd see the guys or girls you liked or whatever, you'd hang out and move around. So for Snap, that's their mall. That's the yeah. place that they meet and convene and break off into side chats and side channels, Discord, the same thing. There are two features, I think. Right now, younger people care about the environment in a way that my generation did not care as much. It's a real value and companies are responding to their customers' values. The second thing is something that I think that Apple did extremely well. And I used to joke about this in the context of Meta. When Meta came out with the portal, that device that would let you talk to your family with the camera and the recording device was sort of their entry into Google Home or Amazon Alexa. I said, you know, it's a really interesting piece of hardware, but it seems to be missing one feature. And my friend said, what's that? I said, trust. I trust Apple. Even though law enforcement doesn't love it, I trust that Apple protects my privacy. It's been one of the great features. And there are so many technologies and so many companies that think about their incentives. And it's like that old thing, either you buy the product or you are the product. I don't believe with Apple at any point in time that they are selling me, that I am the product. There's certain brands, certain products, certain 
technologies where the feature that's most valuable is not battery life, it's not screen pixels, it's it's trust. That difference matters. And, and I think we build our lives around those companies that we care about. I hate hearing in any entrepreneur two things. One of them is you talk about competition or you talk about somebody doing something similar or Jason, and they say the following words, oh, it's validating. It's validating. It, it, it means that the market's there. I hate that. You know why I hate that? Because I want people to be virtuously competitive, yeah. meaning I want them to be not cutthroat so that they're unethical. There's lots of examples through business history where you just don't feel good being associated with that, but you want people that are psychotically competitive in a virtuous way, where they look at that and they will tell me anytime they come and pitch us, oh yes, there's two competitors. One of them, I legitimately think has nothing. You know, they're full of it, they're full of BS. The other one legitimately has two things, but here's the three things that I'm gonna do to beat them. I love that. But I hate when somebody's like, oh yeah, it's validating. The second thing I can't stand, and maybe I'm just too cynical, somebody comes in and I say, you know, why are you doing this? And they look at me and they sort of swallow, which I always think is a little bit of a tell. And they say, I just wanna change the world. And I'm like, you know, I know you're saying that because you watched enough Steve Jobs videos or enough Silicon Valley cliches that you think that's what you should be saying. I don't believe it. And I often won't tell them that, but my partners know that when somebody says, I just want to change the world, I just don't believe that. Now, if somebody says, I was the gay kid in a mostly straight neighborhood, I was the only black kid in a mostly white neighborhood, I got picked on my entire life, people doubted me, they thought I couldn't do this, I was dyslexic, I had a learning disability, my parents split, I didn't have a relationship with my mom or my dad, and I just want to prove them wrong. If they can get to that root fire, I always like to say that chips on shoulders, put chips in pockets, that I believe. You've been around these people, right? Right. Some of the greatest entrepreneurs, some of the greatest founders, creators, they have some propulsive force. And it doesn't matter how much money they make. It doesn't matter how much fame they get. It isn't suddenly like it's extinguished. That chip on their shoulder is like the great propulsive force to do. Steve was, was abandoned at birth. He had adopted parents. Steve Jobs, abandoned. Uh, Jeff Bezos, adopted. Larry Ellison, adopted. Mm -hmm. Oprah Winfrey, one of the greats of all time. You read the early part of her life, you would not wish it on your worst enemy. I always think that these people end up persevering, surviving, excelling, not in spite of these hardships, yeah. but because of them. Now, the perverse thing of that is, well, look, I want my kids to be well-adjusted. I want them to have a better life than I did. I want them to be unafflicted of these things. I always say, particularly joking as the sort of caricature stereotype of my San Fran-based peers, half our company at Lux is New York, half Menlo Park, and we operate as Unum Lux, One Lux. But my peers out there, you know, into meditation, walks, hikes up by the satellite dish. And I always say, no, no, no. For the individual, yes, you want them to find happiness and peace. But for society writ large, you want troves of disaffected people who are constantly going around saying life sucks, this sucks, and that they're conditional optimists that they want to do something about it. Those are the people that drive progress forward because everybody else would be like, I will accept things as they are. And then we get no change. Yeah. And I think the ones that go about it with intentionality, because I think that this behavior is going to be better than that. Like when women make the first move in dating, things get a bit better. Right. Or when we add aesthetics and democracy and access to technology, but we protect privacy. When we say it would be good if people came together and lived in each other's homes because then they can see through each other's eyes or people are gonna to come together in small groups and just be honest and true, real friends, not lying to strangers, and a million other examples. I wanna dig deep on a few things about the future. Let's start, shall we, with biotech. The future is bioengineering and the opportunity that that can create for mankind. Biotechnology itself literally is the study of the craft of understanding life. 
So everything that keeps us alive, keeps us healthy, keeps us from fighting disease, from maintaining homeostasis, all the things that have afflicted us through most of humanity, we don't want to die, okay? We, we now know the main reasons why we do die. Cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, obesity, metabolic disease, all of these things are targets for somebody to say, that sucks, I want to fix it. Now, to fix something, you have to understand it. And our understanding of biology is still so medieval. I mean, literally, we will look back in the next 10 years, 10 years, and we will say, I cannot believe that for most of humanity, we basically poison people with chemotherapy or burn them with radiation to be able to treat these tumors. We just don't understand. What is the metabolism of the tumor cell? Where does it come from? What is the mutation? So much of what we are able to do incrementally and compounding in biotechnology is a better understanding of how these systems work. Now, when you talk about these systems, you can go to the unit of the system for biology, which is DNA. DNA creates its genes, it creates proteins, the proteins have functions, and these proteins are so complicated. And we look at them often in textbooks or on videos in these two-dimensional ways. These things are moving just at insane speeds, constantly catalyzing and the reactions. It's an entire society of these little cells and proteins interacting with each other, signaling pathways, transducing signals like circuits, like the internet. It's just, it, the complexity is insane. And oftentimes we're like, oh, I invented this little molecule that will fit in this little pocket in this protein. It'll turn it on or off, enable it or disable it, amplify it or mute it, and it'll fix this thing. Now, for example, cystic fibrosis. Turns out cystic fibrosis is a single protein which can help to release ion channels to let basically mucus flow through instead of being building up and people having to have this uh, suffocation to death experience. Uh, there's all kinds of diseases where you can find a single thing that took decades and decades of research to understand what's that mechanism. And then when we discover that mechanism, we award a Nobel Prize. It's a great societal incentive. People say, oh my gosh, you know, it's incredible what we've done. So some of the things today that are really exciting in biotech, first of all, it is becoming way more of an information science. We first decoded the genome 22, 23 years ago. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars to be able to do. Today, the ability to do a single sequence is the equivalent of like a COVID test. It's so cheap. It's less than $100 in some cases, even, even more inexpensive. What you can do with that information, again, similar to the adage about technology, is what happens when everybody has one? Now you can start to do population gene studies to understand whether certain ethnic groups are afflicted by a disease, whether certain individuals are afflicted by a disease. What are the things that you can understand are the variations, the variants in a genetics, uh, in the population to be able to target a gene? You might want to do gene therapy. We've never been able to do that. Now we have a technology called CRISPR. CRISPR is effectively copy, cut, paste, and edit for genes. Now, it's still so early. I don't want people to think, oh yeah, you just go in and it's like Microsoft Word, but for genetics and you edit something and you delete this and all of a sudden you're cured. No, most of CRISPR today ends up in the liver. It's like the garbage can of the body. Now, I have a crazy story. We found a university professor. This is about like finding the future. University professor at Utah. His name is Jason Shepard. He's a New Zealander. He's tatted, he's cool. And he was looking at this gene called ARC, A-R-C. That gene made a protein called ARC. Details on this don't matter. It looks like a virus. And he's looking at this thing and he's like, you know, it's really present in the brain. I see it all over. It's part of the body. It's in your brain. It's in my brain. It's in all of our listeners' brains. What is this thing? And he started to look at it. He said, it sort of looks like HIV, like a virus. And as you investigated it, they learned that, of course, people know in our neurons, we have gaps, synapses, and between those flow neurotransmitters, dopamine, things like that. It turns out 
that we also have this little protein that leaves a neuron, cleaves off like a virus, goes over to the next neuron and actually infects it. It infects it and inserts messenger RNA into the neuron and says something salient and important just happened, grow more synapses to create more memories so that this thing can be marked as important. We get really excited about this. We say, my gosh, this could be like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. You might be able to enhance memories or delete them. This is like an editing function for memory. My gosh, people that have post-traumatic stress disorder or soldiers or rape victims or people who suffered horrible crimes, a therapeutic approach. Along comes Feng Zhang. Feng Zhang is at MIT Broad. He's co-discoverer of CRISPR. Jennifer Doudna was his counterpart. She won the Nobel Prize. He won all the intellectual property battles. Uh, so she gets the fame. He gets the wealth. He says, wait a second. No, no, what you guys are onto is interesting, but not because this particular technology will be used for editing memories, but because now you can deliver gene therapy to a very specific cell. It turns out all of us in our bodies have not just one, but hundreds of these things like ARC, which are these viruses that are non-viral. They're actually part of our genome. We were infected by them hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years ago, and we can use them, repurpose them for delivering targeted gene therapy. So sometime in the next few years, you will see drug after drug being made that is a targeted gene therapy. Only the first one was approved maybe seven years ago for the back of the eye, curing people with a certain kind of blindness. I mean, you go back to magic and alchemy, just absolutely incredible. So gene therapy within biotech is a huge deal. Another huge deal is using AI with biotech to be able to discover drugs. The ability to go through hundreds of thousands of pages of literature to sequence everybody's genome and be able to look through this for patterns and then find targets is a really big deal. I'll give you two things that we're doing that I think are super cool. I had a crazy idea, as many of my crazy ideas come from. They come from other people's crazy ideas. And this crazy idea came from science fiction. If you've seen X-Men, Professor X puts on Cerebro, he can spot a mutant in a crowd. And so we got to thinking here at Lux, well, I don't know, there's roughly 8 billion people on Earth. If there's a one in a billion chance of some crazy trait that actually exists. People that can hold their breath underwater for long periods of time. People that can climb the Himalayas but not need oxygen. People that can drink alcohol but not get liver disease. Eat fatty foods but not have high cholesterol. Uh, be in low water desert environment but not get kidney stones. What if there was a protective variant or a gene that's giving them that trait? They were real life mutants like X-Men. So we started a company called Variant. I hired away the head of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who ran their investment program. This guy, Andrew Farnham, putting out two billion a year. He came on as CEO. We now have 17 partnerships all over the world, not in the places where most of us have been sequenced as pale, male, stale, white European or their descendants, but in the Maoris in New Zealand, Pakistan, East Africa, Ethiopia, the Faroe Islands, parts of South America, finding outlier people with outlier traits that are ultimately gonna lead to drugs for the masses. That's a crazy ideal. It's now raised about $120 million, but it started as this crazy brain fart of an idea. And that's what we love doing. I'll give you another quick example, ICON, E-I-K-O-N. We took the Nobel Prize winning work of a guy, Eric Betzig. Eric was looking out into outer space and he was developing new telescope techniques. And he realized that if you inverted the math on these telescopes, you could actually get below the diffraction limit of light, which in layman's terms means you can see inside of a cell in real time and watch what's happening. Mm -hmm. That's pretty crazy. So 
He creates this microscope. He wins the Nobel Prize. We approach him. We say we should start a company around this to sell the microscopes. One of his other co-founders is this other very successful biotech guy who was the head of Howard Hughes Medical. And he says, no, 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 we are not selling those microscopes. I said, why not? He said, because we're going to keep them proprietary so that we can discover drugs that nobody else can. Because in fact, you can use this microscope to be able to see other people's drugs and see how they actually work. Because some of the companies that invent the drugs don't actually know the mechanism of action. Mm. So we started this company. It's raised hundreds of millions of dollars. We brought in Roger Perlmutter, who's one of the best in the business, ran all R&D at Merck and Amgen. And that to me is what's exciting in biotech. Cutting edge optics and AI and software combined with drug hunters, all in service of how do you reduce human suffering by eliminating disease. And these things are just going to keep compounding. So biotech is super special. Within the sort of framework of where we're investing, I call that inner space. And then there's outer space, which is aerospace and defense, and latent space, which is all the AI stuff. Wow, yeah. If you can understand biology better and understand what those markers are, then you can create real change totally. and you can solve things that we have just got used to not being able to solve and they will massively have a positive impact on the human condition. If I take even a more simple example, forget about all the mumbo jumbo of biotechnology, this. Yeah. Okay, you know, Kevin Kelly and a handful of others decade plus ago started the quantified self movement where people were tracking all kinds of things. And I used to be a bit snarky about this. People that were wearing aura rings, which I don't think you are. It's a great product. People like it. And I would ask them, you're using this technology for what? They say, you know, to understand my sleep patterns and all this kind of stuff. And I would say, okay, you know, you have this amazing technology. It took a long time in R&D. R&D was actually evolution. And it's your brain. Ready for this? Are you tired? And they would be like, no. I'd be like, then you're fine. And they would say, well, yes, I'm tired. I say, you need more sleep. There you go. You don't need a ring. You don't need to watch. However, the amount of data points that this is passively picking up is truly incredible. So if you wear it to sleep, of course, you know, you're tracking your heart rate, your motion, your, your REM, your, your uh, deep sleep. But what's more interesting now is it's also picking up how much sunlight you're getting on a given day, mm-hmm. loud sounds that you experienced heart rate aberrations that you can tie into your uh, schedule and see, was I just with James? Was he making me happy? Was my heart rate higher or lower? Was I stressed? Should I not be doing that? Now you could journal on top of that if you have this mindfulness to be able to say like, oh, this was actually a shitty moment for me. All those things I think will end up contributing to a self-awareness and human happiness that are enabled by technology. That's a simpler way of thinking about the intersection of tech and bio. That notion that somehow we are in such an early stage of understanding biology enough to know which things matter and which things don't. And that we were at that moment before with software and now we're at that moment with biology and that really truly will change the course of human history. Totally. Talk about health as well. I'll give you one more and then we can go on from biotech. While the world is in flames and people rightly point to all the negativity, rising rates, inflation, joblessness, post-COVID, domestic politics, dysfunction, war uh, in multiple theaters. While all that is happening, science has a breakthrough. And it's not promoted. It's not hyped like crypto and some of these other fields. It just happens. And all of a sudden, it takes the world by storm. And it's a molecule. And this molecule affects this little uh, receptor, GLP-1. I'm talking about something called Ozempic or Wegovy or Majorney, various drugs that are injectable, soon to be oral. And it has changed society. People that were obese, morbidly obese, type 2 diabetes, are taking a pill or an injection, and it is changing their lives. They are going off other medications for hypertension, for diabetes, for all kinds of other afflictions. The implications for something like that, just because of the biochemistry of a molecule, 
which has total indifference to all the volatility and vicissitudes of what's going on in the world. Science, and this is one of my personal views, I'm always skeptical about human nature. It's Shakespearean, full of our vanities and our best and worst impulses. It's unchanging. Human nature is a constant. We have to relearn all the lessons. We read history, we watch literature, we read our fictions, and we can learn through past. But science compounds. Science doesn't go backwards. We learn that something, just like you were saying before, we thought was true is no longer true. We come up with a better explanation. And that's how science advances, always and everywhere. So I'm always perennially optimistic about science and always skeptical about the human condition, which is unchanging. It's fascinating how that deeper understanding of something seemingly so straightforward and simple can have such massive implications. So let's jump to another place, defense. Politics aside, you make investments in defense. It's a challenging area. We don't have a history of necessarily great stories to tell around that. The roots of venture capital, the roots of Silicon Valley, were not Hewlett and Packard in a garage and vineyards developing personal computers. It was all about electronic warfare, building the proverbial arsenal of American democracy. Companies for the past 30, 40 years have rightly been warned. The American public has rightly been warned. I grew up being warned of the military-industrial complex. And when you look at the adversaries that we're fighting, increasingly technology is allowing for the democratization and access of drones to be able to launch small satellites up into space, to be able to conduct information operations through cyber. You can believe that TikTok is a wonderfully engaging product that is amazing and algorithmically entertaining, or you can also believe that at some point, if not already, it will influence what people believe. It will help shape elections. It will help shape behavior and sympathies. It will help influence American policy because of what the American public is being fed. And that is a entity that is owned, influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. China is amazing. Chinese people are amazing. Chinese Americans are amazing. I am concerned deeply about the tactics and the interests of the Chinese Communist Party and their means of using technology. Many people for the past 10 years invested in China, made a lot of money, and are only now realizing that some of the apps are being used not as we thought to allow for freedom of expression, to allow for the flourishing of ideas, but as tools of the state to surveil, suppress, oppress, control. The economic incentives that have us held hostage are very troubling. I will accept the criticism that somebody say you can justify anything, but I truly believe that when we are funding a cancer drug and we are funding a defense technology, that we are doing the same underscoring moral thing, which is reducing human suffering. I tend to think, being future optimists, that technology used in the right way has this opportunity for us to leap forward and that those are the things that we hold on to. Making sense of those things seems to be a very important part of your investment strategies, but you're far out ahead of most of us. How do you make those judgments? It requires first understanding what is everybody else looking at? What's the consensus? And then finding the variant perception. And the variant perception, just like in music, just like in art, is not the thing that's in the museum already. It's the thing that's in the edge. It's the thing that's in the weird neighborhood. So we spend a lot of time in the weird neighborhoods, but those neighborhoods are in academic labs or in scientists, or sometimes they're on online chat rooms around a particular affinity area. But we're trying to find the thing that other people haven't found yet. 10 years I've had an obsession with, can we give computers a sense of smell? Can I have a phone that I can hold up and the same way I can capture sight and sound, capture odor? And I tell everybody about this. And so one of the ways I do it 
is I broadcast it. And then somebody's like, oh, I've got a guy for you or I've got a girl for you. And, and somebody introduces me in this case to this guy at Google, Alex Willichko, and we start a company around him. We put 60 million into it and we capitalize it. Those are the kinds of things that get me really excited because I look at that and I'm possessed by the feeling that Linus Pauling, who won two Nobel prizes, I think one for chemistry, one for peace, he had this beautiful line about the power of science and the power of knowing, and it's an addictive feeling. He said, I know something that the rest of the world won't know and they won't know until I tell them. That's the power of scientific discovery. That's the power of knowing the future before somebody else. I'm addicted to that feeling. It's the feeling of knowing the band that everybody's gonna be listening to in two years, of finding that fashion thing that everybody's gonna be talking about. You know, it's finding Supreme in 94 or whatever. It's finding Drake in 99. It's, it's finding Google in 97. It's finding the thing, why? Because I have vanity and I want the fame and the credit and the money and all of that stuff, right? It's not done because I wanna change the world. It's done because I got a chip on my shoulder and I wanna prove to people I found that thing before you because I'm competitive. When I think about magic, it's that old cliche that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That's the magic. When you held an Apple product, to this day, I still feel the sense of magic in the features and the interactivity. Finding a technology that gives you that feeling of a spell that's being conjured, that to me is magic. The realism is you have one camp that are Cassandras that are calling for the end of the world and we're gonna all die and AI is the most dangerous even if they're doing it out of a desire for regulatory capture. And you have the Pollyannas that are saying this is techno-utopia, you know, et cetera. The right stance to take is realism. Be real about what's going on in the world. Find the truth in these technologies so that you can adopt them and implement them and then also be with each other. Find the realism. Those two things, the magical and the realism, I would say that my current philosophy is this Gabriel Garcia Marquez mix of the magic of technology and the realism of humanity. Josh, it's been absolutely terrific. And I think there are breadcrumbs here for many to take and hopefully try to find a compass for others to make the right decisions. Thank you. Thank you. My conversation with Josh was mind-bending. Incredibly interesting concepts about the relationship between technology and humanity. None more revealing than his belief that technology itself is not necessarily good or bad. It really depends on how we apply it, what business model we put it into. And his example of the comparison between FaceTime, which brings people together, and social media, which has a huge tax, even though it appears free, and actually divides two technologies not madly dissimilar, actually in their application, turn out to be either good or bad. Another thought was this notion that technology through millennia is magic. Electricity was magic, and the internet was magic, and the iPhone was magic. And the real crux of the moment is when everybody gets it and starts using it, what are they using it for? And so the application of technology is really the moment and how you orchestrate that technology for it to create a positive impact on the human condition. And interestingly, for a technologist, Josh felt that the single most important attribute for a technology and its use by a company was trust. But he also pronounced this notion of virtuously competitive, which is that the thing that you do is both successful and has intention and creates the right type of value. Maybe predictably, he ended with a notion that human nature through the decade, through the millennia, is fairly consistent, but that science keeps compounding and it will constantly compound. And that we will keep learning on the shoulders of giants, that science builds on top of the previous set of knowledge and learning and understanding. 
That's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to Leaders in Innovation wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you like this episode, give it a rating. Five star would be awesome. And review it on Apple Podcasts, if you would. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you want to hear more of. You can email us at podcast at fastcompany.com or tweet us, hashtag Leaders in Innovation. Leaders in Innovation is a production of Fast Company in partnership with founder FNDR, who couldn't afford the vowels. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen, produced and edited by Matt Toda, sound designed by Nicholas Torres. The writing is Matias Sanchez, also ably assisted by a merry band of Camilla, LJ, Hannah, Nikki, Naomi, Nick. This podcast is done in collaboration with my amazing partners at Founder, Stephen Butler, Rebecca Jeffries, and Nick Barron.